0: KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. 5 FM. It's Columbia, Missouri. My name is Mike Hagen, and you are listening to Radio Orbit. It is six minutes after 11 o'clock on Monday, the 31st of July, almost August. we got another hour or so for July, and it's amazing how the time is flying by. Anyway, it's Orbit, and we're here again, as we are every Monday night from 11 p.m. until 2 a.m. in the morning time, and we're doing it up tonight. We started things off there with some Sun Kill Moon, sort of uh, remembering things from last week. But uh, that song is called Lily and Parrots. And I'll tell you a little bit more about Sun Kill Moon in just a few minutes. But uh, quickly, let's take care of some business here. Big thank you to Debbie Johnson, doing the wonderful stuff on Free Range Radio Theater every Monday at 10 o'clock before this program. Before that, Kelvin and Jason doing it up. Wonderful music, jazz plus blues equals you-know-what And uh, before that, Tech Radio, of course, talk to Justin and John on the air tonight. As a matter of fact, they always have answers to my technical questions. Uh, What else? Jeff Wheeler, wonderful stuff. Always Mondays from 3 to 5 on Uncommon Light. KOPN, Mondays and all through the week. Wonderful stuff. So glad that you're with me tonight. We've got three hours of fun and interesting radio, okay? And good music, too. So let's get on with it. Uh, let's see as I said uh, well if I'm thanking people I should thank Sun Kill Moon and in particular Mark Kozalek, the brilliant songwriter and musician behind that band or behind that name and uh, they got things going tonight and we'll hear more from them alright thanks to Marco Roden, an amazing show uh, last week from Marco if it's a brain twister you know that's the way it goes with Marco but the bottom line Marco Roden has some workable ideas that seem to solve at least a few of our problems, maybe all of them. So it's work that needs to be talked about, needs to be pursued, expanded, uh, discussed, debated, whatever. Uh, But very interesting, awesome stuff from Marco. Pleasure to have him on the program last week. And I still feel, as I said sort of last week, though, that it's really not about finding the answers at this point anymore. Uh, It's a a matter of, of facing the answers. And Marco's a guy that has some of them for sure. And he's sort of putting them right there in your face and says, well, hey, you know, what are we going to do with this stuff? You know. Anyway, we also played uh, some music last week during the first hour from the band that we're hearing tonight. They're called Sun Kill Moon. And I played a few songs during that first hour and uh, there were some people that sent me emails and said that they liked it and they'd like to hear some more. So anyway, we're going to hear them for the whole program tonight for the duration. And if you missed last week's show, of course and you want to hear what they're talking about, just get on the web. It's at www.MikeHagan.com and you can figure out a way to get to my archives, the audio archives or the music archives and you can find interesting stuff in there. All right. Okay, the forum is up. We've got the live chat room up as we've had for the last few weeks here and uh, for people listening over the web, it's awesome and I really love the interactivity that's possible with a live stream and a live chat. So we'll have some uh, we'll have some folks joining us there in the chat room and I'm sure they will be full of questions and uh, comments as always for our guest who's coming up in 50 minutes and his name is Christopher Dunn. And Chris Dunn is an amazing guy, wrote a book that I read many years ago, probably over 10 years ago now, called Giza Power Plant. And it's a remarkable book and We're going to talk with Chris about it, and he is, by trade, a machinist, and a brilliant one at that. Uh, He's an engineer, but he's also a machinist, and somebody who understands tooling, and in particular, uh, he's very skilled and knowledgeable in the cutting and working of stone, and so he has some really interesting insights about what was happening on the Giza Plateau, Five thousand years ago, and we're going to talk with him about that, okay? And and he'll probably have some insights into some of these other megalithic uh, places that are popping up around the globe, everywhere that we've run across in the last fifty to a hundred years, including the amazing sites in South America and in Asia, Angkor Wat in particular. And uh, also, I'm going to talk about it a little bit more at the end of this hour. This place in Lebanon, this amazing historical place in Lebanon, that, you know, they can bomb this place all day and they're not going to destroy what happened here. Uh, this is a town, a city, a place that's called Baalbek, B A A L B E K, in our tongue. But anyway, Baalbek has some of the most amazing stonework. Uh, on the planet that's been discovered to this day so we'll talk a little bit more about Baalbeck at the end of the first hour and hopefully Chris will be listening in and maybe he can comment on that after we get him on the air at the top of the hour that, uh, at midnight okay so anyway Christopher Dunn amazing stuff the author of Giza Power Plant and the title of that book will become more clear as, as Chris and I talk but anyway you can find out information about him on the web always just hop on uh the internet and go over to my site at www.mikehagan.com and then uh, you'll see information about Christopher and you can get over to his website and his uh his website is actually called www.giza g i z a giza power.com that's g i z a power.com all right, but you can link directly over there from my site as well, all right? So that's coming up in about 45 minutes, and trust me, it'll be one to to listen into because Christopher Dunn is really cool and really interesting guy, and I've been looking forward to talking to him for a long time, but just sort of finally uh, got the inkling to do it when I ran across this story about Baalbek Beck last, uh, I don't know, a couple, three weeks ago. So anyway, uh, let's see, what else? Lots of good music tonight that we're going to play... Uh, Sun, Kill Moon, as I mentioned. They got a couple CDs, and um, this one in particular we're going to feature tonight. Actually, we're going to feature both of them tonight. This one is called Ghosts of the Great Highway that that first song was off of, Lillian Parrots. But there's another one that's brand new, and it's called Twin Cities. And uh, I'll play a few tracks from this tonight, too. It's great stuff. So anyway, all that stuff coming up, and uh, Christopher Dunn as well. All right. So, hi to everyone. Thanks for the nice emails. Hello to everybody listening over the web, live or otherwise. If you listen uh, from the archives, we are streaming though now, and every week via Cosmic Waves Radio. So, www.cosmicwavesradio.com is the way to hear Radio Orbit on Monday nights. If you're outside of the signal uh, area of KOPN, which is only about you know fifty, sixty, seventy miles on a good night from our Center of focus here in Columbia, Missouri. So, for those of you who are outside of that radius, hop on the web and go to CosmicWavesRadio.com, and all the wonderful people over there will make sure that you can hear this program regardless of where you are on the planet, as long as you have the gumption to do it and the wits. All right? So, anyway, thanks to everyone over there at CosmicWavesRadio.com for making it happen live on the net. I appreciate it. All of you, Carrie and Paul thanks so much all right and uh, to larry norriger the guy that does the website doing wonderful stuff as always hello to everybody who's new at the site we've had a lot of new registered users over the last couple three weeks so hello and thanks for coming and checking it out all right we've got some great upcoming stuff guests i'll talk about in just a few minutes i have a, a particular musical guest that i'm interested uh, in telling you about that's coming up for the 9-11 show and these guys are something else uh, I've only talked to the one um, of two of them, and his name is Adam Gutierrez But anyway, the project is something they call the Afghan Music Project. And these are two gentlemen who went to Afghanistan uh, in 2001 and basically began to record and revive for us and to, and to document uh, for us uh, folk music in Afghanistan. And it's an amazing tradition and uh, wonderful stuff that we get to uh, partake in now because of these two guys, Adam Gutierrez. And I'm sorry that I don't know his partner's name right now, but uh, I'll know it in a few weeks. And on 9-11, we'll have great music to accompany our guest, who will be Richard K. Moore. And you all know Richard. He's been on the program a couple times before. And we'll talk with him, the author of Escaping the Matrix, a wonderful new book out now by Richard K. Moore. And so, lots of cool stuff coming up. We've got August right ahead of us here. You know, before you know it, it'll be the fall and winter time again. Alright, so pay attention now before you get too old. Alright, okay, if you get on the site and you go over to the website, we're trying to build a mailing list. So if you just give us a um, valid email address and a name and a password, which you can choose, then you'll be in the club. And then you can have access to all the archives. There's no money involved, anything like that. I don't want to know any of your detailed information, but uh, just a valid email address so we know it's not, you know, a spam or that sort of thing. And we'll give you access to the whole site and all the artwork, and there's poetry and wonderful music. And, of course, the program archives, which have been there now for two years. Last year was the, um, well, last week was the two-year anniversary, the official two-year anniversary of the program. And every one of those shows that we've done every week, uh, except for one, (laughs) thanks to a friend of mine named Amber, and I always uh, like to mention her on the air. I love her and she knows it. But anyway, we have all the programs on the web, and you can listen to anything that I've done in the past for the last two years since this program has been on the air. And there are lots of interesting guests and fun shows that we've done over the course of the last two years. So... Uh, with that in mind, go to the web and register up, and you can uh, get in the door. All right. Now, if you do that, the guys from Yache, my friends Jeff and William, have made their CD, Sweet Mother Mercy, available. You can download that, and it's great stuff from South America and wonderful music that you've heard here on the program before. And, of course, you can get in the archives and download some of it yourself. But anyway... Uh, Larry has a bunch of freebies up there if you do it so anyway just go over to the to the website and check it out and if you'd like to uh, get involved alright the email address is orbitradio at com. and I'd love to hear from you I get quite a bit of email now every week but uh, it's wonderful to hear good bad and ugly and I'll try to respond if I get the opportunity and the time and uh, I shouldn't say that I respond to everyone. one I, I've yet to I think um, but as long as I'm physically able I'll respond to every email that I ever get I know that's a big deal probably if you ever start to get a bunch of them but I don't think I'll ever get that many <laughs> so anyway if you want to try me orbitradio at com, and uh, we'll see alright okay um, upcoming guests, as I said tonight Christopher Dunn that's in 40 minutes he's amazing stick around Alan Goldstein, he'll be back on the air, Dr. Alan Goldstein, soon. uh, The amazing doctor from Alfred University in New York who brings us up to speed on the world of nanobiotechnology. He'll be back on the air in August sometime. The 14th, we're going to have the birthday party, even though the official two-year anniversary was last week. We're going to have a party here at the station uh, on the 14th. So local listeners and anybody out there, if you can make it to Columbia, Missouri, uh, by August 14th, you're welcome. The doors are open. and You can sit next to me and stand with me and we'll do the show together and make music and art and talk and it'll be fun. And so anyone who's uh, up for it is welcome to come down here, 11 p.m. on the 14th of August. All right? The doors will be open. All right, let's see. What else? On the 7th, that's next week. I'm not sure what we're going to do. I'll either have sort of a, a guest that I'm not going to talk about because I'm not sure if we can get it firmed up or not Uh, or I'll just do the show and we'll catch up on news and uh, open the phone lines maybe and talk to some people and answer some questions and uh, discuss some stuff with people in the chat room and we can always have fun for three hours um, by ourselves (laughs) alright, I better just move on so Jay Widener, Jeff Stray both coming on the program soon John, uh, John Major Jenkins he'll be back on the show Daniel Pinchbeck on the show soon Cat uh, Harrison, hopefully this fall. Dennis McKenna, of course, uh, back this fall. And lots of other things to come, all right? So, it's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And if you're a friend of the station and you want to bring more friends to the station, uh, do it. And you can get some free ice cream. Okay, if you add a friend to KOPN, find someone who's uh, interested in supporting the station, you'll get a free gift certificate for yourself and your friend to go down to Sparky's down on 9th Street and have a scoop of ice cream. And that's good stuff, even though I'm probably not supposed to say that because I can't endorse uh, anything (laughs) except my own radio program, I guess. I don't know. Maybe I can't even do that. Anyway, if you're a friend of KOPN and you want to make more friends and you want to bring more people to the station, please do, and you can go have some ice cream on us and them at Sparky's down on 9th Street. Okay. All right, it's Mike you listen to Radio Orbit. It's about 21 minutes after the hour on 11 uh, let's see on uh, July the 31st and we'll play some more music here from Sunkill Moon. Let's see, what should we play here? How about Well, we're going to do space weather in a minute. So, 1 2 3 4 5 6. This is called Gentle Moon. And, uh, again, wonderful stuff from Sunkill Kill Moon. The CD is called Ghosts of the Great Highway. We'll hear more from them coming up uh, throughout the program. And I'll play some other stuff from a CD called Twin Cities that I just got that I like. Anyway, uh, this one, as I said, called Gentle Moon. And it is a gentle moon tonight. We've got about a quarter, the first quarter of the moon uh, showing tonight. And then we'll talk about space weather and the things happening above our heads in just a minute. It's Mike, you to Radio Orbit www.mikehagan.com and you can also find information about KOPN on the web at kopn.org. Stuff there. That's Gentle Moon, again, Sun Kill Moon, from the CD Ghost of the Great Highway. All right, it's Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. It's about 27 after the hour of 11 p.m. on the last day of July, August around the corner. And we're going to start things off with Christopher Dunn for August, my birthday month, by the way. So it's a good way to start it off with the, the mysterious, strange, and unusual Christopher Dunn, going to get into all of that and more in a half an hour or so. We'll talk about Giza and stone cutting and what the hell was really going on there 5,000 years ago or whenever. Okay, so uh, before I do space weather, I was going to do this before the break. Actually, I forgot to do it, but uh, I'll do it now. There is something really quick that I wanted to do, uh, a couple things that need to be sort of put to rest from last week. First, Winston Churchill Um a few people reminded me that I promised a quote from him, and I neglected to read it uh, last week. I got, I got all excited about it, and then I, and I didn't even read it. So, anyway, well, here it is. Uh, I'm going to read a couple of them, actually. But the wonderful stuff here from the former Prime Minister of England, rivaled only by his modern-day counterparts. So, think about this when you see all these statesmen and stateswomen out there doing their thing. I saw Condoleezza Rice in a picture that you probably didn't see on CNN or Fox on a beach in Malaysia, you know, 24 hours ago. Anyway, this is Winston Churchill. I do not understand the squeamishness about the use of gas. We have definitely adopted a position at the peace conference of arguing in favor of the retention of gas as a permanent method of warfare. It is sheer... Affectation to lacerate a man with the poisonous fragment of a bursting shell and to boggle at making his eyes water by means of a lacrimatory gas. I am strongly in favor of using poison gas against uncivilized tribes. The moral effect should be so good that the loss of life should be reduced to a minimum. It is not necessary to use only the most deadly gases. Gases can be used which cause great inconvenience, and would spread a lively terror, and yet would leave no serious permanent effects on most of those affected. This is Winston Churchill in 1919 as the Secretary of State for War, of course, uh, for Great Britain. This is one of the War Office Minutes, so to speak, uh, from May 12th of 1919. Here's another one. I do not agree that the dog in a manger has the final right to the manger, even though he may have lain there for a very long time. I do not admit that right. I do not admit, for instance, that a great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America or the black people of Australia. I do not admit that a wrong has been done to these people by the fact that a stronger race, a higher grade race, a more worldly, wise race, to put it that way, has come in and taken their place. This is uh, Winston Churchill in 1937. 1937. Hmm, what else was going on in 1937? I don't know. Well, uh, so anyway, for me to glamorize, memorialize, lionize a scumbag like this is unreal. And, you know, these are statements. How different is he than his little mustached friend in Germany? I mean, what's the difference between these people? I don't know. You know, for me, I just don't see it. Anyway, uh, the whole conversation began because of another Ward Churchill, completely different Churchill, and I don't even think he's related to, uh, to Winston, but he's a, he's a treat, too. Here's a quote from Ward Churchill, by the way, and thanks to Bob for getting me all riled up about this whole thing to begin with. But here's Ward Ch- Churchill, and then, then we'll move along. White domination is so complete that even American Indian children want to be cowboys. It's as if Jewish children wanted to play Nazis. (laughs) Okay, uh, what else do we want to put to rest from last week? Uh, I want to talk about hope for a minute. Uh, I may have appeared to be in despair last week, and I was very sad, and I'm still saddened by all the death and destruction and uh, the manipulation and propagandizing and you know the suffering of children primarily and the innocent people who have nothing to do with any of this stuff but uh, I actually am very hopeful believe it or not I think things are getting better and I sort of see all of this stuff as sort of the last gasp of a dying organism and it's just lashing out but I don't think that it's going to last I see actually quite a bright future and I guess it just depends on where your money's placed, where you put your bets, you know? So, anyway, we'll see. But I have a feeling and a strong intuition that we're not as bad off as everyone would like us to think. Anyway, it's a nice thought. All right, so I'm not as uh, doom and gloom as everybody thinks. Uh, I think that's, there's a tremendous opportunity for uh, a wonderful future, as there always is. It's a matter of uh, taking advantage. I mean, look around at what's happening. There are these amazing things that are happening uh, on all levels of endeavor. You know, it's not just war and destruction. I mean, that's one thing. It's in our face all the time. But my gosh, I mean, there are men and women out there that are doing remarkable things right now that really can have uh, a dramatic effect on everyone. Uh, it's just a matter of, I don't know, making it happen. I have a feeling that certain things are just going to happen. Just gonna, there's not going to be a a headline or anything, you know, things are just going to start to happen and people are just going to start living different lives and leaving behind the people and the folks who decide to keep living, you know, these types of lives. So, anyway, we'll see. Interesting, though, because the future is just remarkable to imagine. I mean, if we don't blow ourselves to bits, what's coming? I mean, everything, right? Everything you ever imagined. That's what's coming. If if they don't blow it to bits. And that's our encouragement. You know, if you want to be strictly nihilistic about it and have you know, spirit not even enter the game, although that's really the name of the game, but you know, to play devil's advocate, so to speak, you know, just for your own benefit. The future is gonna bring the unimaginable for you. You can live in your dreams, basically. Live in the imagination. That's what these people are going to bring to us if, if we can hold off the Promethean tendencies of the freaking apes, you know, the ape side of man. Because that's what this is. I mean, it's a battle between the sides of men and women. What's going on inside, you know? Is it the monkey? Or is it the man, the human, and the woman who or what is going to prevail? Or is that not even a great way to put it? It should be a balance, I guess, between the two. Sometimes you need the monkey. Trust me. (laughs) So uh, that's the thing. Recognize the monkey, maybe. I don't know. All right, enough about monkeys and humans and all this stuff. But the bottom line is we have some challenges ahead of us as human beings and the greatest challenge is to recognize that we're not just marauding apes with technology you know that's a good name for a band marauding apes with technology but that's a bad idea marauding apes with technology is a bad idea and it wasn't uh, such a dangerous idea it's always been a bad idea but it wasn't as dangerous you know, uh, 10,000 years ago because the tools were different. Well, now the tools are really dangerous for all of us. So, we have to somehow come to terms with the monkey underneath, as the guys from ISM put it so neatly, and uh, grab hold of our future and uh, make it, whatever we want I mean it's we have the potential now to do anything the question now becomes when when you can do anything what do you do when you can do anything what do you do and this is the question that humankind is now being faced with we're going to find out All right, the moon first quarter of the moon showing up in the sky right now and there's a beautiful blue star called Spica. That uh, if you go out and you look up to the uh, above and to the left of the moon, you'll see this beautiful bright star. And it's called Spica. And um, it's a big star, actually. It's 11 times supposedly. Now this is this is the uh, the science behind the whole thing. Okay, for what it's worth, uh, Spica is supposed to be 11 times more massive than the sun and 13,000 times brighter. It's expected to go supernova, like most stars. But uh, anyway, tonight it's just sort of showing itself off up there by the moon. So if you've got a clear sky, hop out and look up. Beautiful stuff up there, okay? Now, speaking of that, uh, I talked about this last year, but it's going around again, the, the, the dreaded Mars hoax. If you get an email that says that uh, on August 27th, Mars will be as large as the full moon, well, that's sort of facetious email. That's not going to be the case. At least, the probability is that it will not be the case. If it is the case, if Mars is as big as the full moon on August 27th, (laughs) grab the ones you love. All of them. And get close. (laughs) Okay? All right. Uh, Actually, on August 27th, Mars will be on the other side of the solar system. It's about 385 million kilometers from the Earth. It will be dim and tiny. Nothing in comparison to the full moon. So, uh, not a big deal, Mars, on the 27th of August. All right? If you want to see something really cool on the 27th of August, look uh, to the east before dawn. And you'll see a beautiful conjunction of Venus and Saturn. And that might be more worth your while. Okay, on the 27th of August. Okay, what else? Uh, The inflatable Genesis satellite. This is the one that Bob uh, Bigelow put up there in space not long ago. I think I talked about the launch, if briefly. Anyway, it's up there. And uh, Genesis is a satellite that is orbiting the Earth. And in the evenings now, you can sort of see it. As it passes over North America, it glows pretty brightly. If you're familiar with the terminology, it's about as bright as a third magnitude star. And on the 28th of July, there's a guy on the web who took an interesting movie of it. And if you go over to spaceweather.com, you can view that and you can see what uh, it's all about. And then if you go out in the future, you'll know what you're looking for. All right? Anyway, this is a deal, uh, as I said, that was developed by Bob Bigelow from Bigelow Aerospace and it is a mission that is sort of testing the idea that inflatable modules can be used to build space stations uh, and even orbital hotels. This is sort of the idea. Of course, there's an economic interest, (laughs) as always. Uh, So anyway, so far so good, and Genesis seems to be working good and uh, working fine. All right, what else? Uh, August 1st, tomorrow, today, almost, uh, the Alpha Capricornid meteor shower coming up, the peak, all right? Also, uh, the 3rd through the 6th, the 9th International Mars Society Conference. That's in Washington, D.C. On the 6th of August, the Southern Iota Aquarids meteor shower is also peaking. So there's a bunch of meteor showers in the next couple days, That if you're out in the early mornings, um, the early morning hours, I should say, you might get a, a good look at some uh, some shooting stars. All right, what else? Comet P, 1998, VS-24. Uh, is going to make its closest approach to Earth on the sixth, as well as Comet Darrell's three. So there's always comets and asteroids zipping by us, and nobody ever talks about them. So that's the only reason I mention this stuff. Uh, the sixth is also the anniversary of Galileo, uh, the probe of Galileo, and did a did a fly uh, flyby of the Jupiter moon of Io uh, in 2001. And August sixth is also the 45th anniversary of Vostok two, which was um, a launch of a Russian rocket. That had this guy named uh, German Titoff on it, and he was the second man in space behind Yuri Gagarin. So uh, August sixth, the anniversary of all this stuff, and also the 825th anniversary in 1181 of supernova Cassiopeia. Amazing discovery, actually, that happened 825 years ago. All right, what else? Uh, the 69th annual meeting of the Meteoritical <laughs> Society in Zurich, Switzerland. For people that are interested in things that are smashing into the planet, and oh, here's one just for kicks: uh, the sixth through the eleventh of August, the Joint Astronomy Conference: Heating versus Cooling in Galaxies and Clusters of Galaxies in Garching, Germany. That could also be titled "Whistling Past the Graveyard" or something into the wind. All right. Anyway, it's Mike, and you listen to Radio Orbit. I'm going to take a break here, and we'll play uh, a couple of songs. And this is from Sun-Kill-Moon's new CD. This is entitled Tiny Cities, the name of the disc. And the song is called Space Travel is Boring. We'll be back in just a minute. It's Mike, you're listening to Radio Orbit and KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Check us out on the web at kopn.org. And you can always get me on the web at www.mike.org. Hagan H-A-G-A-N dot com and if you want to do that right away you'll get 15 minutes to uh, brush up on our guest for the evening Christopher Dunn who will be with us at the top of the hour and we'll be talking about the amazing uh, megalithic architecture on the Giza Plateau in Egypt and probably some other things as well alright so that's coming up in just a few minutes so stick around it's Mike you to Radio Orbit KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM Kill Moon again that song is called Space Travel is Boring that's from their CD Tiny Cities that uh, just came out recently Mark Kozlak wonderful singer songwriter guitarist super talented dude and very pleased to be able to present some of his music and his band's music on the program here he is formerly the front guy from a couple of different projects he did he did a, a solo album maybe two under just his name Mark Kozlak And then he did maybe four or five CDs with a band that was called Red House Painters. And the Red House Painters were great. And this Sun, Kill, Moon stuff, though, is just obviously my favorite uh, recent stuff. So um, we're listening to it tonight. It will accompany us for the rest of the program. We'll hear a few more songs uh, when my guest Christopher Dunn and I take breaks. And that will be coming up in about ten minutes. I'll have Christopher Dunn on the air, and we'll talk about... His book *Giza Power Plant* and also uh, lots of other things, I'm sure. So stick around; that's coming up in just a few minutes. Let's talk about the news really quickly. Let's see, did I forget anything else? Let me take a quick look at my notes here. Yeah, I got—I I have the big X marks by uh, Winston Churchill, so I took care of that. We did space weather and uh, yeah, the Baalbek thing. I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. So anyway, okay, let's just uh, cruise down to the news section here on the website I never know what Larry has up there but uh, it's always interesting and as I page down on my website I want to remind people uh, if you have art if you have music and you're interested in sharing it with us and with other people send it to me the email address as I mentioned is orbitradio at aol.com and if it works with the program I'd be glad to play it on the program and share it with other people I've gotten lots of stuff uh, over the last couple three months and I'm sorry if I don't mention it often enough. All of it I appreciate and I like. Some of it is appropriate for the program, some of it isn't. It's the only way that I can uh, put it. And I'll do my best to, uh, uh, to you know, to respond and to listen and read. If you send poetry and there's a place for visual art for, for painters and um, graphic artists who are doing stuff with the new technologies, there's a section for all of this stuff on the website at mikehagan.com and I encourage you to... Send it to us. Larry is amazing. My website um, administrator, Larry Norager, he takes all this stuff and uh, really does make it into art. And so we really appreciate it and we encourage it and we encourage everybody out there to do your art no matter what you're doing. If you're an aerospace engineer who happens to be a brilliant machinist and know a lot about ancient megalithic architecture, or if you're, you know, whoever, you know, the guy that comes here. And volunteers in the afternoons at KOPN. You know, do your art. Do that uh, thing that makes you go, wow. And it'll make you feel better, and probably everybody else, too. So, anyway, down the news page here, stem cell breakthrough. This is one that Larry's actually interested in for personal reasons. Uh, But anyway, uh, there's a biotech company in Singapore It said that it has created human embryonic stem cells that comply with the strict standards imposed for clinical use in humans. This is big news. Uh, The new cell lines have not been made with any living animal tissue and are so far believed to be safe for clinical use in humans. That means that all of the religious arguments are moot. Okay, uh, why are intuitions about how the world works are often wrong? (laughs) Here's a story for you. The reason folk science so often gets it wrong is that we evolved in an environment radically different from the one in which we now live. Our senses are geared toward perceiving objects of middling size between, say, ants and mountains, not bacteria, molecules, and atoms on the one end of the scale and stars and galaxies on the other end. So this is a particular idea that just says we're just, we're just really confused, I guess, is basically the, the point of this article. And I, I think there's a pretty good argument for that, actually. But... Uh, I don't know, there's some brilliance happening at the same time, obviously. You get both ends of the of the spectrum. Two-way streets, as Joseph Pierce always says, it's a two-way street. Everything is. All right, what's this one? A mathematician may have solved the 100-year-old problem. Well, Marco Roden solved every mathematician's problem, every one that ever existed. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. All right, we got a few minutes before we're going to bring Christopher Dunn on the air. But before we do that, uh, I want to talk about a story that actually was sort of the kick in the pants that made me get in touch with him. I've been familiar with Christopher's work for quite some time and read his book, Giza Power Plant, back in the late 90s. Maybe before that, I forget exactly. I don't even remember when it was written, but it's been 10 years, I'll bet, um, or close to that. Anyway, uh, I recently was at my friend Kent Stedman's site, and if I haven't mentioned Bard, I should, and he's always up and about these hours at And He's a close friend of mine and a wonderful guy and a guru. Uh, he hates to be called that. He's a wizard, and he's a shaman of the highest nature. Uh, at any rate, he had a story about this place in Lebanon on his website. Interestingly, he had it up there before they started bombarding the place uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it has to do with a place there that's called Baalbek. And this place is a freaking enigma, okay? Uh, There's an article that Kent has linked, and you can go check it out for yourself. But there's some wonderful imagery here and some great uh, writing that's done by a guy named Gian Quasar. I don't know if that's his real name or her name. But anyway, let me read a little bit to you about this, okay? Now, Baalbek is the name of an archaeological site in Lebanon, Right? Lebanon's been in the news of late. And maybe this is part of it. So check this out. In Roman times, it was known as Heliopolis, or the city of the sun. Hmm. Sounds like a nice place. An example of how ancient is the site can be found in its holiest area. This was a place that was called the Temple of Baal. And, and uh, this is a god that I think represented Jupiter. And it's a hybrid between the ancient... Canaanite god Baal, which is just another name for Lord, and uh, and the Roman, Jupiter. So there's this temple there. And uh, the temple was built on a mound. And archaeologists look for this sort of thing, and it indicates that a place has been held sacred. And what had caused this area to be significant or sacred was unknown. Okay, But anyway, most date the ruins here to Roman times. They say... Uh, however, they followed a pattern of building upon the sacred areas of culture before them. This is evident of Palmyra, where the Temple of Baal is also built upon the tell or the Ruin Mound. The original Canaanite temples could be 2,000 years older than the Roman remains left today. The question is, had the Canaanites done what the Romans did? In other words, did they build upon the site as well? And if so, what caused the site to be considered sacred to all these people? So now here's the deal. The oldest part, the oldest part of the ruins of Baalbek, they fit absolutely into no known culture. And who knows what this was for, but there are at least questions that come up concerning the blocks that were used to build this particular deal. And Baalbek is going to become a real big question mark because there are lots of things being uncovered throughout the world today about the prehistoric past that we assume existed and our earliest stories and cultures of history but i mean this is another place that obviously we didn't know what was going on there are stones here you guys that are 1500 tons there are some that are 68 feet long by 14 feet high 14 feet wide they're the largest worked stones on the planet so far i mean as far as we know i guess and uh it's just a it's just a freaking mystery how these stones could have been moved into place, and how even... And we're going to ask... uh, uh, Christopher's listening, I'm I'm assuming right now, but anyway, maybe he can talk to us a little bit about the science and engineering knowledge of today and, you know, what these things tell us. But anyway, it is an amazing thing and very, very strange. So uh, with that in mind, we will come back in just a few minutes with my guest of the evening. His name is Christopher Dunn. And he's an amazing guy. He's written a wonderful book years ago called Giza Power Plant. And uh, it sort of stands alone. It was sort of a work you just do, and that was it. And uh, uh, he has has his own uh, life and uh, work outside of that particular book. But I'm not sure if he ever really wrote anything other than that book. And, again, we'll ask Christopher about all this stuff when we get him on the air in just a few minutes. But, anyway, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll come back in just a minute with Christopher Dunn. And you can check all this stuff out on the web at www.mikehagan.com. You can link over to Christopher's site from there. And um, interesting stuff for sure. We'll be talking about it for the next two hours on Radio Orbit. It's uh, KOPN, Columbia, 89.5 FM. We're just about to the top of the hour, so we'll just uh, do the official legal stuff now. KOPN, Columbia, 89.5 FM. All right, it's Mike, Radio Orbit. Here's another song from Sunkill Moon. The song is called Pancho Villa. And, again, this is from Ghosts of the Great Highway. Check it out on the web. i got a bunch of links up there to uh, their website. And uh, wonderful music uh, that we've been uh, featuring over the last few months available there as well in the music archives, okay? All right, so Sun, Kill, Moon, Pancho Villa, back in a minute with just some wonderful stuff from Christopher Dunn. To Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan on KOPN eighty nine point five FM All right, Christopher Dunn has an extensive background. As a master craftsman, starting as an apprentice at an engineering company in his hometown of Manchester, England, he was recruited by an American aerospace company, he immigrated to the U.S. in 1969, he began as a skilled machinist and a toolmaker, and he has worked at almost every level of high-tech manufacturing, from building to operating high-powered industrial lasers. He also held the position of project engineer and laser operations manager at Danville Metal Stamping, a Midwest aerospace manufacturer, and I believe he is still employed with that company. So at any rate, we're going to ask him a few more questions directly and waste no more time. Say hello and thank you for coming on Radio Orbit tonight. Christopher Dunn, thanks for being here, Christopher.
1: Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure, Mike. Well,
0: it's a pleasure to have you, and as I was saying I'm not sure if you were listening in before the break, but I've I've had the inkling to talk with you for quite some time. I read your book, Giza Power Plant, years ago, and uh, anyway, I ran across a story about Baalbek a few weeks ago, and I thought, wow, that's a great reason to call Christopher Dunn and get in touch with you, and uh, my friend Pio, who's uh, listening right now over the internet, uh, as a matter of fact, dug up your email address somehow, and then here we are, so thanks.
1: Oh, great. I'm not, I'm certainly not an expert on, on Belbek. It's a place I'd love to go, but not right now. Uh, but uh, it's uh, an absolutely fascinating uh, example of this uh, civilization that uh, existed on this planet, that uh, left behind artifacts that are, cannot be explained by conventional understanding of history and the tools that were available years ago. So... Yeah, the tools to create these artifacts just weren't in the toolkits back then.
0: Amazing. All right. Well, look, before we get uh, into all this good stuff, let's talk a little bit about yourself. I've got to ask for the listeners who aren't familiar with you and your work, just some questions about uh, where you came from and what made you who you are, because you're an interesting guy, and I'm sure people have a little bit of uh, wondering about what made you so.
1: Well, uh, thank you for that. I, I never really considered myself to be an interesting guy. Uh, but
0: <laughs> you should
2: read your book.
1: <laughs> oh, maybe I should. I don't know. It's been a few years. No, uh, oh, the my my background is quite unremarkable, just like a lot of people. You know, I um, went through school and, uh, and and back in back in my, uh, when I was a, a young uh, teenager. The uh, the the idea was to actually uh, go into the trades rather than go into university. So actually,
0: right. do something with your hands.
1: Yeah, and so um, and that was forty five years ago. So things are, are a little different now, of course. So I went into the trades, and then um, I, I would actually call my um, passage through life or my soldier through life as a uh, creative discontent, where I. <laughs> I would I would um, go through life, uh, and then suddenly I would be, become discontented with, with the situation I was in, mm. or uh, I, I needed to learn more, I needed to grow, and so essentially that, that uh, propelled me uh, into different adventures. One of them was actually emigrated to the United States right, right. in 1969. And continuing to grow and, uh, and learn as I, when I came over here. And so I was, you know, coming to the United States was probably the best thing that ever happened in my life in, in terms of, um, professional and spiritual growth.
0: How old were you when you came over here?
1: I was 20, 23 years old. Hmm. And, uh. Young. Yes, a very, actually probably one of the youngest, uh, skilled machinists that was hired by this company and uh, it was right on the tail well, actually when I uh, the year I arrived um, I was over at a friend's house a friend that I uh, met when I came to this country and it was in May of 1969 and um, I would, we were watching when they landed on the moon
0: <laughs> I was five years old I remember
1: yeah, it yeah it was an interesting <laughs> story I was working for a company in, in Martinsville, Indiana, uh-huh. and uh, they had uh, done some work. They'd actually done some work on the uh, on the on the survival pack that uh, the, the astronauts used, and I think they had built the frame or did, did welding on the frame. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the joke uh, around the plant at that time was, uh, because, you know, uh, factory workers are great jokers. Oh,
2: oh, yeah.
1: But uh, the joke around the plant at that time was that there wouldn't be any problem as far as the astronauts coming back, because whenever Twig made anything, it always came back for <laughs> <a request. laughs>
0: You know, Chris, I actually really appreciate that. I worked in aerospace for a short period of time in Denver, and uh-huh. uh, I the work that I did was primarily with the C-130 and not really spacecraft type stuff, but gosh, I uh, all of that stuff just really uh, brings it back and makes me crack up. So. Oh
1: yeah, yeah. Well, things don't re- haven't really changed. Oh, that I much. know.
0: It's so <laughs> funny. You know, I there there are some guys that do a, a radio program here uh, a few hours before I do, and and uh, they were talking about the uh, the moon landing, actually, believe it or not, and uh, and just how how really raw the technology was that we were using i mean the more we move into the future and look back we see like i mean it was, was just absolute lunacy no pun intended you know to yeah. uh, i mean it's outrageous what they actually did
1: oh well i know i mean it's like how how do they even think that they would get there
0: <laughs> i know it was i the guy compared it to something like uh uh go, going from california to australia in a kayak
1: you know, it's mm-hmm. p- it's
0: possible, right? But it's, mm-hmm. boy, it's not the smartest way to go, and and it's certainly dangerous, and uh, amazing things could happen along the way, and it and and those stories are outrageous, you know.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose everything's relative. If you go back to 1969 and you look back at the at uh, the the Santa Maria and the oh, exploration, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> back then you were think, Oh my god you know they would actually think that they could cross the ocean in that thing yeah
0: and not even knowing what was there uh, certainly the same same right. metaphor for sure yeah it's that uh yeah
1: it's that, it's that uh you know the pioneering spirit that, right. that people right. have you know uh that creative discontent where they say okay i've had enough of this place i'm mm. gonna have to look at something <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah i have to admit i have a little of that in myself so uh anyway, okay, so that 's what sort of propelled you along. You made it here to the states, and you began working as j- just pursuing a career as a professional right
1: yeah, um it was you know the wonderful thing about working in the states um, is that uh the opportunities for people who uh, just are willing to work and apply themselves mm-hmm. and um, and and learn and grow uh, um, yeah, and because there there is no uh there isn't the same last distinction here that there is in in the in the u k in england uh or europe um, and you know you do have you do have a culture uh, that has been built by people who have just pulled themselves up from by their bootstraps without right, any right. any silver spoon or anything like that handed to them uh and there and there are many stories of people who um have risen to the top, and there's not one particular set track that you have to follow to get to the top. It, um, you can you can begin life as a as an apprentice, or you know as a, a factory worker, mm-hmm. and and then actually work your way up our, from the ground floor and and uh, rise to the ranks of. Uh, of executive management, if you want, and that's basically what I did, and now I am um, in executive management at the, at the company that I work
0: at. So, uh, you're still with that original company?
1: I'm not. No, I, <clears throat> I uh, was hired by the a company called the Altamal Corporation, and mm-hmm. they they had uh, the Ultimate It was like a holding company that bought up a lot of aerospace manufacturers right, right, right. in the Midwest, and mm-hmm. they they had bought the company that I was hired to work at and then several others, Um, they disbanded them since. Uh, The company that I worked for got into trouble uh, when they found that they had uh, done some illegal welding on a a linkage for the swing-wing bomber. Mm -hmm, mm
2: -hmm.
1: Unfortunately for them, the swing-wing bomber went, went down over Vietnam and no, for no fault of, of uh, this company, they—they
0: right, they lost They—they
1: they went through the with a fine-tooth comb, and that's where they—they they found the illegal worlds and hmm. uh, they put hmm. the cut the company out of business. Right, right, right. So, some some uh, some of the principals actually went to jail over it. So the—that's uh, um, a hard lesson to learn. <clears throat> I was not there at the time. I had le- I had since left the company, but uh, the. Uh, uh, that was the history of, of that company and then I worked for several other companies and landed at um, uh, my present company about twenty years ago uh... so i've been in the states for about thirty seven years and i've been with this company for twenty years Okay.
0: all right so uh... so how the heck do you get interested in giza
1: that's a that's a good story in and of itself um, the i i started uh, it was a fascination that i had uh i was going i was actually visiting this what you what may be considered a uh a metaphysical bookstore uh, and because i was very interested i had become agnostic and i was searching mm-hmm. at that time of my life mm-hmm. uh, in my late 20s early 30s and um and so i was reading different books on uh, world religion and the on uh, different kinds of philosophies, um, and there was, of course, pyramids uh, seem to pop up all over the place when you mm-hmm. get into these renegade bu- bookstores, you know, mm-hmm. The,
2: mm-hmm. these That's
1: offbeat bookstores. That's true. And and the, uh, there was this one book called the the Giza Power Plant, or oh, not the Giza Power Plant. I, don't,
0: <laughs> I know that one. You know, I
1: know the guy who wrote that. <laughs> but uh, it was called it was called Secrets of the Great Pyramid. Um, oh, Peter uh, Tompkins! Peter,
0: Peter yeah. Tompkins, I know that book. You yeah. know, he—I I, I hate to left turn, but he wrote another book called *The Secret Life of Plants*. Yes, that's the most yeah. outrageously cool and and uh, uh, helpful book that I've—one of the most amazing ones I've ever read. So, anyway, yeah, Peter Tompkins, amazing guy.
1: Yeah, he's a—he <clears throat> was—he did a, an absolutely fantastic job. Uh, he's a brilliant scholar on the on the secrets—the uh, secrets of the Great Pyramid—and. Um, yeah. The uh, what started me off was that he had raised he raised a lot of questions in that book about the uh, the Great Pyramid, uh, questions that not necessarily he he was uh, posing, but uh, other other researchers throughout oh. history mm-hmm. about the true nature, the true purpose uh, of, of the Great Pyramid, how it was built, and uh, for for what reason it was built, and that was the first time in my life that I had actually even questioned the tomb theory mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i hadn't i i was not familiar with the with the uh the schematics of the inside of the mm-hmm. the great mm-hmm. pyramid and, and as soon as i started to look at the cross-section of the uh, the, uh, the drawing of schematics of the inside it, it was uh, a real puzzle to me mm-hmm. it didn't look anything like a building that you would actually house a body in, or a tomb, or a temple, because uh, there was a lot of uh, there were a lot of features that just didn't make sense and, uh, for any reason, uh, and even those that those alternate reasons that had been proposed. And, mm-hmm. and so there's been a, there was a lot of people throughout history that have grappled with with that question about what what the true purpose of the Great Pyramid was, focusing on some of those un- unusual anomalies on the inside. Mm. And so I, I, I kind of uh, saw what they had uh, written about it and started to formulate my own ideas because I didn't... For instance, there was one theory that it was an astronomical marker, mm. uh, which it could... Serve that purpose as far as the the uh, shape or the size of it. It mm-hmm. could be a geodetic marker, mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. you know. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, with the sophistication of what was yeah. going on there, it could be a, a number of different it things.
1: It could be. It could have been a number of a number of things right. just by the, its its shape and size on the outside. But that then when you get and all this. Yeah, and then when you get onto the inside, though, you have all these other features mm-hmm. that, uh, okay. I, I can I can buy that, that that it's a that it would serve that purpose but but saying that does not explain everything else and so you know all these questions about the the other features on on the inside were not answered um, within the, the context of the theories that were being proposed.
0: All right, hey, um, uh, l- let me uh, stop you just for a minute, okay, Christopher? Sure. Um, for the people out there who are just joining us, we're talking about the pyramids that are on the Giza Plateau in Egypt, and people are familiar with them, probably from the Discovery Channel or anything like this, and you may have even seen uh, Christopher on uh, the History Channel, I know I've seen you on one of those uh, at some point. Um, at any rate, the conventional theory is that these were just big buildings that were built to honor dead pharaohs, and that they were just buried there, and they were tombs. This is the, the conventional idea, right? mm mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so just to clarify that for everyone, so everyone knows exactly where we're at. And Christopher uh, began to investigate this and said, Hmm. Well, there are some other questions and there are other people, obviously, over uh, many, many, many years that have all uh, been asking interesting questions.
1: Right. And um, but I I, um, I set myself a task and I said, Well, really, to explain the Great Pyramid, you have to explain all the evidence. There. I mean you can't you can't ignore evidence um, to uh, and then expect your your theory or hypothesis to stand right and so I I puzzled over it and puzzled over it and then finally the light bulb went off over my head um, about what was going on but uh, that it was a an energy device and and um, and that was in nineteen seventy seven now wow yeah
0: <laughs> Thir- to almost thirty years ago yes
1: See, so- now,
0: yeah because the first thing that i have heard or found was that paper that you wrote in nineteen eighty four
1: yeah. Uh, in, okay. In, it's in, funny that in
0: ana- in anal- it? it was in a it was in an old magazine called Analog Magazine.
2: Yeah.
0: And uh, it was about I think it was I actually have it on my website. It was called Advanced Machining in Ancient Egypt. And, That's correct. And uh, it was anyway. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit because this was you you came across this seven years prior to that. In seventy yes.
1: seven. Yes. Actually, I had a, a manuscript and I I wrote a manuscript and I sent it to a publisher called Prentice Hall.
2: Uh-huh,
1: uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. And they were going, they were very interested in buying it. They had asked for some changes and modifications and uh, and to actually flesh things out a little more um, because I wrote like an engineer, you know. <laughs> 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 uh, fairly uh, pithy, as they put it, but, you know, highly condensed. So I needed to uh, flesh things out a little bit. And, and so i was working on that and then they they changed their format as genre and the editor left the company and they sent me a very nice letter and so i was it made its way back to me and then i was trying to shop it out to other publishers and i have it a have a string of <laughs> rejection slips on it that's great so,
0: actually <laughs> yeah. i mean i love it it's like the uh you know, it's the battle scars or whatever or something.
1: Oh, they were yes, and they're mm-hmm. real scars, and they 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 really cut very deep.
0: Oh, into, it's brutal. And, I know, especially
1: I know. when you wait nine months for
0: oh. a publisher
1: to respond, and and the you know the conventional wisdom is that you you don't submit it to more than one publisher at a time because mm-hmm. they will, you know, they need to know that
0: uh, yeah that they're actually they're not
1: wasting them. their time. Oh, it's just kind of, yeah. you not know, So anyway. The, uh, that's, you know, I mean, that's just, uh, that's just the price that you, the entrance fee, if mm-hmm. you will, mm-hmm. of, uh, publishing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, a very good friend of mine who is, uh, also an engineer, uh, Dr. Alan Andrews, and he was also a, um, a writer, uh, of science fiction in Analog magazine, mm-hmm. uh, suggested that I, Submit, you know, just take part of the manuscript to, and uh, and make a an article and submit it to Analog uh, magazine, and that's what I did to uh, Dr. Stanley Schmidt, and uh, he accepted it and it was published in '84, and it was re- reprinted in 1991 uh, in a book called uh, Analog Essays on Science. Really. And um, as so, they're one of the best articles of the 1980s. So it um, it received a, a lot of attention, a lot of uh, negative attention, <laughs> a lot of positive right. attention. So.
0: Well, well, we'll um we'll take we'll take a break here in a minute. But you, the work holds up, and the interesting thing uh, is that you know you come at it from an angle that very few are able to come at it from. In other words, you're uh, a guy who's actually done the handiwork you know what it's actually like to machine and uh i mean that has to be invaluable when you're looking at things like the stones um that are building these monuments mm-hmm. and you went to uh, you had you been to egypt yet christopher
1: um i just got back in may for uh, my seventh visit wow. to egypt i've been to, i was actually there twice this year
0: when was the first time that you went? Hmm.
1: The first time I went, believe it or not, was in 1986. Huh. So. So I was. I had written my book and I had had my article published, and I hadn't even been to Egypt yet. So. Uh uh-huh. Um. So I went in uh, 1986,
0: and um. Was it amazing when you first were there? When you actually sort of got to verify everything that you'd been well, thinking and writing. <clears throat>
1: You know, it's it's a uh, it was really really strange <laughs> experience for me. I, it was like I it had to be very the strange. Great Pyramid just looms large across the, the you know the whole neighborhood, mm-hmm. um, and you you see, you see it you can't miss it. Well, it doesn't matter where you go around uh, Giza or the, the villages that surround it, and if you you know in one of the one of the hotels nearby. Um, it's there. <laughs> you can't miss it. And, uh, but the funny thing was, I, I was afraid to go up to the plateau and actually go in there because I, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, all this Im- emotional investment, these ideas that I've developed, the theory that I've developed over the years. I'm going to go in there and it's got to just shoot everything. <laughs>
0: mm. Well, so, you know, it's interesting because you know I. I'm familiar with engineering and i and i'm I'm always marveled by how things work on paper you know mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> oh exactly, uh... and that's that's pretty much it <laughs> i mean things the theories are fabulous, you know and yeah. I mean, until that point I'd been an armchair theorist, Ooh. and I'd never even been there and so of course, you know I was being realistic, well, what if I go in there and this mm-hmm. isn't the way it was supposed to be, and this has changed, and this is just totally uh wrong and and so I never—I was three days before I got the guts to actually go up oh there. Oh my
0: God! All right, well hold on. The... Let, let, let's uh, let's let's hold off there, and we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about that first trip, okay? Okay. And then uh, we'll explain to people why it's so interesting because uh, we're going to start to talk a little bit more about Chris's uh, expertise and uh, why he had the ideas that he had and uh, the questions that they. That, that they bring up when we start to look at these stones and how they're actually quarried and worked and everything else because it's just remarkable. Okay, everybody, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM, and my guest is Christopher Dunn. You can find us on the web at www h a g a n dot com. Information about me and Christopher and the musical people that you're hearing on the program tonight and previously all there on the website and uh, for. Perpetuity as well If I can keep it up there And as long as I'm breathing We'll make it available To everyone You can download it Listen to it Share it with your friends Whatever Okay Everything available On the web www.mikehagan.com Alright let's play A couple of quick ones here Two short songs From Sun Kill Moon And um, this is from Again the CD Tiny Cities We'll be back in just a minute It's Mike You're listening to Radio Orbit And stick around we got Christopher Dunn For the next hour and a half Jesus Christ
3: To the river, he, he smile, and his was also oh, natural. that planet before prayer. working hard.
0: Alright, once again, that's uh, music from Sun Kill, Moon, Mark Kozalek and Company. That track you just heard was called Four Fingered Fisherman. And before that, you heard Jesus Christ was an only child, which may or may not be true. I read a book once by this guy named uh, Glenn Kimball who wrote a book called uh, Secret Stories from the Childhood of Jesus or something like that, and uh, that's a pretty um, outrageous book. <laughs> and, you know, Christ went to to uh, Egypt, right? I think so. Anyway, all right, I wonder what he was doing there. Um okay, it's Mike, you listen to Radio Orbit, it's K O P N Columbia eighty nine point five F M. Check us out on the web at ww.mikehagan H A G A N dot com and also K O P N dot O R G and on Monday nights uh streaming to the world via cosmicwavesradio.com. dot com. Thanks to everybody over there for making it happen for us over the internet. All right, and uh Christopher Dunn, thank you for sticking around with us. Hi. Oh,
1: you're welcome.
0: All right, great. So, um, anyway, where were
1: we? Um, I was actually checking out your website. That's pretty cool.
0: Oh, thank you very much. It's no problem. It's uh, it's all the work of my friend Larry Norridge, this wonderful uh, friend and web uh, wizard, and he's just amazing and he does great stuff. So thank well, you. That's
1: very creative. That's
0: thank you. Creative. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, that's great. All
0: okay. right. So, uh, well, you in. You, you went to Egypt in '86, and you're about to walk into this place. It took you three days before you could even get the nerve. <laughs> and so, what happens?
1: Oh, it was uh, it was absolutely incredible, and in every time since, um, everything was uh, as I had imagined it. And uh, through looking at the uh, the different books that I had uh, accessed over the years, everything was pretty much. Uh, exact Okay, uh, so, so, right, so
0: so let's talk now a little bit about what you thought and what you found in other words now let's start to, to talk a little bit about what your ideas were and now they're starting to bear themselves out
1: yes and, and one of the things that um, one of my theories in the book was uh, a theory about the positioning of the uh, or the, the use for the, the grand gallery mm. and uh, I don't know if if everybody who m- may be listening knows about the Great Pyramid and the, the schematics, but basically what you have is a structure that is uh, covers 13 acres, it's level within seven eighths of an inch, and it's 481 feet high, uh, positioned with uh, precision to, to within three minutes of a degree to true north. <laughs> um, it is a very precise, precisely built, massive mountain of stone um, on the inside you have these shafts that uh, and, uh, traverse the, into the pyramids uh, into the bedrock there is a descending passage it's a 23 and a half degree angle it's only about 41 inches square so um, it's, it's quite narrow you have to stoop to, to uh, go down it there is an ascending passage of the same dimension and uh, my book is a, actually a focus or a study of all the different enigmas and unusual anomalies inside the, the Great Pyramid and finding explanations for it. Well, one of the uh, explanations was for the Grand Gallery, which when you come up the Ascending Passage, uh, and you, you're actually crouching down as you walk up it, on a, at a, again, at a 23.5 degree angle.
0: Okay, and this is from the ground level?
1: Uh, this is from, actually it enters from the, uh, the, the descending passage. Now the interesting thing about the, the ascending passage, you've got one that's going down to the, into the bedrock to a subterranean chamber, and then you have the ascending passage that branches off from that descending passage at the same angle. Uh, the story about the uh, ascending passage is uh, that in uh, 812 AD, Caliph al-Mamun decided, or had heard about all the treasures that are to be found inside the Great Pyramid. Mm-hmm. And, you know, many different uh, rumors about uh, all kinds of jewels and uh, glass that would bend and not break, hmm. and crystals and all kinds of stuff. Well, he decided that he wanted to. Uh, Swell his copper with some of those treasures and his men, and they attacked the north face. And reportedly, at that time, the the um, the report was that the entrance somehow was, was on the north face. And he, they searched for days, couldn't find the entrance, and so they decided to just start tunneling in. Um, and they they dug this this uh, entrance shaft. Uh, which is actually the easiest, probably one of the easiest parts to, to uh, travel along when you're going into the Great Pyramid. Mm-hmm. Because you can stand upright and this, um, and it travels in a horizontal posi- uh, a loc- uh, direction. So it's, it's moving horizontally and, and you, you can stand up straight. So, <laughs> anyway, then he was, uh, Uh, The legend goes that he heard a muffled sound coming from the inside and redirected his bore to that direction and uh, came across the descending passage. Now, one of the interesting features...
0: So they're just digging there with drills, just looking for... Well,
1: I mean, not even drills. Mm. uh, Chisels and hammers and, you know, they're just... uh,
0: just trying to see yeah. what. Was,
1: uh, yeah, they're, and they're working. They worked for months, you know, to actually make their way in there. <laughs> but then they got in there and they uh, they found this this uh, descending passage and going down. So they go down this passage. They get to the subterranean chamber and they don't find nothing. I mean, there's nothing down there. Um uh, but they. And it's
0: a big chamber, or.
1: Uh, actually, it's a fairly fairly good-sized chamber, it's, um, and you can stand up in it. But that is even more that that is a, a really difficult climb. Climbing down it, and climbing up it's a it's about three hundred and fifty feet long. Wow! And, and you know the interesting thing about this uh, this shaft that goes down to the subterranean chamber is that in in the eight, late eighteen hundreds, a William Flinders Petrie, who was the first, one of the first British, uh, Egyptologists or archaeologists, uh, did, a, surveyed it, uh, and he determined that the accuracy of this shaft or this passageway, mm-hmm. the accuracy was within, uh, 20,000ths of an inch, mm-hmm. which is about the thickness of a thumbnail over 150 feet of the constructed portion.
0: And this is built inside of stone.
1: Yes, and then the quarried portion, the portion of the shaft that goes, uh, that's actually dug through the bedrock down to the the subterranean chamber was the the entire length over 350 feet of of, uh, both constructed and quarried passageway was within one quarter of an inch of being absolutely straight. And so that is... uh, that is something that has not been explained uh, how they were able to do that uh, because of the, the the amount of stone that had to have been moved and the the cramped space there's only room for one person at the uh, at the work face at any given time how do they get light down there ventilation
0: um, and, and the, how big are the stones involved that we're talking about down there
1: well the uh, when you're talking about the stones down the the uh, subterranean chamber it's all raw bedrock so uh, we don't have any quarry stone down there Mm -hmm. Um, the quarry stone in the descending passage um, it's very difficult to determine what the true size is
0: but they're big Uh,
1: yes they're they're large stones the the lower casing stones or the lower portions um, of the great pyramid are built with Larger stones; they get uh, smaller as they they reach uh, to the top. But mm-hmm. but the the uh, stones on the inside that make up the walls of the constructed portion, like the like the grand gallery and the the, uh, the queen's chamber, so-called queen's chamber, those are much larger uh, blocks and they're finely fitted limestone. Um, but again. Unless you know that the how how deep those stones go into, you know, from the wall face that you're looking at, you cannot really determine. Right,
0: you don't know the depth of the stone. The depth of
1: it, yeah. Uh huh.
2: Uh huh.
1: I see. I see. So that you know, I I believe that some of the largest stones are actually in the Grand Gallery, um, because of uh, the the fact that they actually had to reroute one of the so-called air shafts um, so that it would act, go around the Grand Gallery um, and it's my belief that they did that because of the nature of this particular edifice what they were doing with it and that they did not want to compromise the integrity of the the uh, the grand gallery that feature itself by cutting through the the stones which indicates that they are using a smaller stone which really indicates that uh, they were at least 48 feet 48 inches no more than that more than 48 inches deep because just by itself if you would if you would uh, take the shaft and run it straight out it would pass by the, the, the grand gallery, uh, without even intruding into it by about 48 inches. So, mm-hmm. whatever the, whatever size stone it is, it's more than four feet deep. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, let, we'll, we'll get back to Alma Moon because that this, this is a fascinating story and one that I, I discuss in my book. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alma Moon actually is credited for f- Discovering the internal uh, passages and chambers of the Great Pyramid, and the reason for it is the muffled sound that he heard. They it's, it's speculated, or the legend has it, was that there was a, a prismatic stone that was located in the uh, in the descending passage that became dislodged and fell, and this stone covered. A, a granite plug and so the granite plug was was there and they noticed the granite plug and and then thought, aha, uh-huh, why would they use granite in this place uh, there must be something behind it so they uh, chiseled around the granite plug and uh, lo and behold they find the ascending passage and the rest of the internal Arrangement inside of the Great Pyramid.
0: Amazing. Now you've mentioned limestone, you mentioned bedrock, you mentioned uh, now. um, What's this other stone that you just mentioned? I'm sorry, it escapes me. The granite. Yeah, granite. So how many different kinds of rocks are we talking about in there? Well, uh, some are quarried and some are local, or what?
1: Yes, I mean when I say quarried, uh, they could have been. Quarried locally. Oh, excuse me. Uh, oh, I'll have a drink of water. Here. Sure. The um, the stone was quarried locally. In other words, it was extracted from the ground locally, right. and it was quarried from a uh, the Mokattam Hills, which is a finer limestone. Um, uh, the limestone at the Giza Plateau is a kind of a nummulitic type limestone. Uh, which is a, a coarser and uh, not as dense a material. So, yeah, the, there are two, ty- two types of limestone in the construction, and granite is a, an igneous rock.
0: And granite is very hard,
1: right? It's the hardest rock, mm-hmm. yes. It has a high percentage of, of quartz crystal, uh, silicon quartz crystal in it. Uh, and the, uh, the so-called king's chamber... And the center of the pyramid uh, is constructed entirely of granite. Uh, the granite is, was brought from Aswan, which is about 500 miles down the Nile.
0: How, how the, do we know that it came from there?
1: Because that's the only place in Egypt where they have this particular kind of granite. Okay. Uh, it's a, <clears throat> a, pink, a pink granite uh... with about fifty five percent silicon quartz crystal
0: okay so it's unique to some particular area
1: so it's, uh, yes it's unique to that particular area All right. Um and the that is where you find some of the larger stones uh... the beams that uh... Are actually superimposed on top of the uh... chamber um, are about twenty seven feet long they weigh up to seventy tons apiece and there's over
0: seventy tons.
1: Seventy tons. Yes.
0: How, how does that compare to the things that we might move around today? I mean, I know people are going. to I mean, I just need just just for a rough idea. Do we move anything that 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 heavy?
1: Yes. Oh, yes. I mean, seventy tons is a uh, we, we we definitely oh. we move seventy, 70 okay. tons. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, with any any uh, kind of tasks that you have for moving heavy objects, uh, the, there's always a, a, a risk to it, a danger, um, and the work, it, it should be done by professionals, obviously, and those professionals, they call rigors, but uh, uh, but then you have to have a suitable crane, and then, of course, the work side itself is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and how where you would actually pick a load from and um, picking and placing right. it. Um,
0: and it, the thing about the... Or one of the things, at least, that always sort of struck me is that it seems like many of the places that you're talking about are like sort of cramped spaces. How, In other words, even if they could move something that was very heavy, uh, the machinery in our particular viewpoint, the way we use technology or the way we've developed technology... You couldn't make a machine small enough to get it in there, or something like that.
1: Well, the, yeah, I mean, the um, <clears throat> it's it's hard to say. I mean, it depends. It depends whether a machine is needed. Um, I would. I, I mean, I can certainly ima- imagine a machine to create the descending passage and quarry down into the. Uh, into to the subterranean chamber I can envision that the um, and so that is the only really the only uh, cramped space besides the well shaft the, the only cramped space where um, you would have real difficulty there are there elsewhere when you're actually constructing something there are always options mm when um, I mean you can have you can build a device where all the spaces within the device are too small for anything to go in mm-hmm. but once you once it's constructed you know it's pretty, right. Much, right. It's pretty much closed up and mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and it's not necessary for anybody to go in there mm-hmm. um, and it functions as, as intended you hope but, and so, you know, that's where that's when I, when I was looking at the, the Great Pyramid, I was looking at these, what I call, co- what I consider to be the schematics of a machine. And I.
0: Why did you think it was a machine?
1: Well, um, it was mo- mo- mostly a, a, um, a process of rationalizing why a culture would actually build something like this and, and build this design in it.
0: To the specifications that you mentioned. To
1: these specifications, yeah. Um,
0: and Christopher, would you mention again? You mentioned something about being seven eighths of an inch level over some particular distance, and that is a a, a big thing, I think. Maybe you could talk about that.
1: Um, yeah, I mean it's it's huge. Um, to if you consider what the modern building codes are or construction and you are laying concrete for a foundation mm-hmm. and the uh the code is about twenty thousandths of an inch per foot. Per foot. Per foot. I and I mean,
0: that's so
1: right. if you take that modern code for laying a foundation and you take it over thirteen acres or the distance between one corner and the other, the Great Pyramid could have been out fifteen inches. So um, that is a uh Seven eighths of an inch is extremely close.
0: Over how? Over what distance again? About
1: well, uh, seven hundred fifty feet <laughs> uh, along one <the> side. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> how does it compare to like a like our like, like a big long runway or something like that? So oh, that we would try to make it you know, purposely really <laughs> flat.
1: Yes, you, yes. I, um, you would you would try no comparison. Yes, you would find that, that it's flat. But I think <laughs> if you uh, you know uh, what you what you do. For, it depends on how you what you used to inspect it. It's like you take a, a particular object, and it's like when I go to Egypt and somebody says, "Oh, this looks like it's been machined." You know uh, how how precise is it? Well, the only way to tell is to actually go and measure it. Um, <laughs> and and so I have done that, and so I found that some things are not so precise and other things are amazingly precise. Right, right, right. But uh, you take a runway and you you can look down the runway and you can say, okay, this looks like it's dead flat. But how are we going to determine if if it indeed is dead flat? Well, I'll tell you what. You set up a laser on this end and I'll set up a target on the other end at the, the same height of the laser, and then we'll just go down and we'll check it with a, a ruler or a, a scale, or you know, and we'll check it at, at intervals. Right. And then you just, then you come back and you say, well, okay, it's uh, it's probably within an eighth of an inch or something like that, or maybe uh, an inch or a quarter. You know, but to actually determine exactly how flat it is. Uh, it depends what kind of how how accurate you want to be, because even a ruler is not a an accurate measure uh, when it comes to measuring some of the artifacts that I I w- have actually inspected in Egypt. You have to you have to have instruments that uh, will measure to uh, something a lot closer than than what a ruler will measure to. Right. And, and and so, you know, it depends on <clears throat> it depends on the precision of the artifact of the or what you're trying to accomplish, really.
0: Okay, so yeah, so there are examples where it's very precise because there was obviously something in mind and it needed to be, and then there are other areas where it obviously wasn't that big of a deal. Uh
1: precisely. that uh what if you'll excuse the pun. <laughs> uh
0: Precis-
1: <laughs> yeah, so you either yeah, I'm, have
0: I'm catching on, you know. Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's like... And, and this is one of the one of the other things that I... And there's an article on my website that uh, you may enjoy, and that's called The Precision of the Ancient Egyptians. And I, I addressed the, the subject of precision. What is precision? Why is it necessary? Why do we even perceive of precision? Why, why do we use it? I mean, it, it's a... It's a concept that's born out of necessity, really. Right. Um, we enjoy it today with all the artifacts that we have because the necessity for it is 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 born out of the need to make things cheaper. And the only thing that where you can make things cheaper is to remove the variables from the manufacturing process.
2: Mm.
1: So, and so the act of doing that. Uh, removing the variables out of the manufacturing process you improve the precision hmm. and and so it's been an evolutionary evolutionary thing over the years I mean some of the products that come out of the machines that we uh, operate today the uh, worst condition is better than the best condition that, mm-hmm. uh, came off machines about a hundred years ago
0: yeah you know uh, Chris believe it or not I I, I work in a factory uh, during the day and uh, I, I actually do quality control for, for a, a small manufacturer here in town.
1: And you know exactly
0: what I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm about. very familiar with it, and it's amazing. We have uh, uh, the particular product that we make is a, is a twisted cord that goes into uh, belts and hoses, this sort mm-hmm. of thing like fan belts or whatever. But um, we have technology that's, you know, 40 years old, these old, we call them ring twisters, and they twist cord, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then we have new technology, literally brand new, you know what I mean? And uh, it's amazing to see... Exactly what you're talking about between those two things that supposedly do the same thing you know
1: right right i mean the the uh the physical forces involved don't change so much but um the the precision of the tools and the uh and the controls that actually monitor the process uh, uh, is what really changes mm hmm mm mm-hmm. And that in itself is a fascinating study. And, you know, most people really use their modern-day artifacts without even thinking about how they came
0: to be. I know. It's such a tremendous tradition behind all these tools. Yeah. And it's really, uh, you know, shameful, actually, in a way, because so many of them are bastardized and used in, in, in nasty ways. But there really is... An amazing ingenuity and history behind all of these things. In fact, the radio that I, you know that we're on right now, and the internet that people are listening to, it's just outrageous, you know.
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible, the uh, the growth of uh, of technology. And the problem. I'm getting back to Egypt. The problem for that we have is that we we have a huge disconnect. With what we find in Egypt and what we conclude from it. Mm-hmm. Because while we can, while we can see these absolutely fabulous artifacts that are finely crafted, um, beautifully executed, out of the, some of the hardest materials that you would find on the planet, <laughs> um, and some of them absolutely enormous. I mean the obelisks and some three hundred ton statues, easy. A thousand ton statue, yeah, we'll make a few of them too, <laughs> equally precise, beautifully crafted, perfect surfaces, and and then we say, well, how did they make these? And they go, well, you know, uh, they had some sticks and stones, some <laughs> sand. <laughs>
2: right
1: right right <laughs> and it, oh my and so the disconnect there is that you know a culture anybody who could conceive of these these marvelous masterpieces could surely conceive of the tools that would equal uh in in capability or in in uh in manifestation in terms of uh, ingenuity uh and and genius mm-hmm. as, as the artifacts themselves right. so you know the tools have to
0: match the job right all right well look uh it is the top of the hour so i got to do my job here and we will take a short break okay okay all right everybody it's mike you're listening to radio orbit it's kopn columbia 89.5 fm my guest is christopher dunn you can find information about chris on the web uh, at his website which is www.gizapower.com, and you can always link directly over to Christopher's site from my site at All right. Okay, we'll be back with Chris in just a few minutes here. And let's see, I better take care of a little bit of business for the station. If you'd like to volunteer and come down and help us out at KOPN, uh, the first Tuesday of every month, At, I believe, 6 p.m., you can come down and talk to Jules. And I'd like to give out that phone number, uh, 573-874-1139. Just call Jules anytime if uh, you'd like to find out how you might be able to come down here to KOPN and help us out. We have lots and lots of different things that uh, people can do to help the station and to become a part of what's happening down here. It's a great place and lots of fun and cool people hang out here, too. So, all right, uh, enough of that. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Let's play another. Uh, we're going to play two short ones here again from Sun Kill Moon. This is Mark Kozilek's project I've been talking about for the last couple days, days, uh, last couple of weeks, actually. And this is from Ghosts of the Great Highway. We're going to hear Last Tide and Floating. Maybe that's how they made some of those stones go where they went. I just floated them in there. Two more from Sun Kill Moon. Those are from Ghost of the Great Highway. Once again, that was uh, Last Tide and Floating. Man, I just love that stuff. Mark Kozlek and company, great new stuff. Uh, that's actually older stuff from Sun Kill Moon, but they've got a new CD that I've been sort of digging into tonight as well, and that's called Twin Cities. I might play a couple more from that in between now and the end of the program. Uh, at any rate, it's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My guest is and has been Christopher Dunn. For the last hour and 10 minutes or so, we're going to have uh, another 45 minutes or so to share with Christopher, and it's been fascinating, uh, so we'll say thanks again for sticking around with us, Chris, and uh, hi.
1: Hi, oh, it's my, my pleasure.
0: All right, well, look, uh, before the break there, we basically have determined that the, the fit doesn't match the function or something's going on, and you had an intimation early on, uh, probably because partly to do with your your own uh, background as a machinist but you recognized something that you saw there and it looked like machinery so let's talk a little bit now about what you thought was going on there and what this thing was actually used for
1: yeah sure that's fine Um, when i first saw it i I, first of all i was i thought about the size of this thing and the size of the pyramids over there in general Um, and they're absolutely huge I mean they're just man-made mountains uh, I climbed the Great Pyramid in 86 and you got two-thirds of the way up and it's awe-inspiring it just ab- absolutely takes your breath away when you, when you even try to wrap your mind around the idea that uh, human beings actually built this thing mm-hmm. um, two, almost three million blocks of stone uh, and and did it with great uh, precision.
0: Right, again, this level of precision. The uh,
1: level of precision. And so, <clears throat> basically, the thoughts that were going through my mind was, why would they build something so large? Uh, not just just one of them, but several. Um, that's one. Number two, why do they find the need to employ such precision in the artifact? And as you mentioned earlier, the the conclusion I came to, as far as the precision was, that, that number one, I... A, they had a, number one, they had a a very high purpose for it. Um, uh, If they were creating that precision by hand, um, it would have taken, oh, I don't know, hundreds of years. Um, uh, But the other one was that their tools were capable of nothing less. Mm -hmm. And referring back to the analogy that I made about machine tools today, uh, not being capable of turning out the uh, um, the worst or uh, the the best condition that machine tools of a hundred years ago turned out right, right, the variables right. have been worked out of the out of the process right so you know those th- those thoughts were going through my mind, and then the enigmatic internal workings of this thing and some of the questions that they raised, such as the subterranean chamber its an anomaly. It's a very interesting anomaly but the conventional theory about the Great Pyramid is that they the pharaoh wanted to be buried in a, in a, uh, a chamber underground and they dug the descending passage down to this chamber and then the pharaoh changed his mind and so they built the, uh, the ascending passage, branched off from the descending passage, built the ascending passage and then uh, the so-called Queen's Chamber, <clears throat> um, and Egyptologists say that that's a misnomer because the uh, uh, the pharaohs were never buried with their queens, so to speak. So, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, but he had this chamber built, and then he changed his mind again. So they went even higher up into the pyramid, built this grand gallery, and then the the uh, so-called King's Chamber uh, out of granite. Okay. Okay. And so. None of that made sense to me, um, and, and for really good, really good reasons. The there are shafts that are, that lead off from the uh, queen's chamber. Uh, they're about eight inches square, and they shoot off at different angles. One, I believe, is about thirty-nine degrees. The other is about thirty-three degrees or forty degrees, um, and the uh, and then. King's chamber has similar shafts though they are um are different in a way they they go they connect from to the outside from the king's chamber whereas those in the queen's chamber did not don't connect to either the outside or the queen's chamber and so that is that is a question in itself um, they didn't discover these shafts until 1872 when an early explorer named Wayman Dixon uh, detected a crack in the wall, pushed a thin rod through the crack, and it just kept on going. So, uh-huh. <clears throat> And then he was tapping around that area, and it sounded a little hollow, so he chiseled it out and then did the same on the opposite wall and chiseled out some limestone there and found the northern shaft. Well, the question has been, what was the length of the shaft? Well, the answer to that question didn't come until 1993 when a robotics engineer from Germany, a uh, fellow oh, by this the name is of...
2: Gantenberg,
1: yeah. Yeah, Rudolf Gantenberg. Rudolf Gantenberg, yeah. Uh, he built this small robot. They, he called it Upuat, the uh, opener of the ways. And he was actually hired by the German expedition over there. Uh, to to do some cleaning uh, his company was uh, was hired to uh, create a robot to go through these shafts clean them out and then install these fans to provide ventilation to the inside um, and while he was there he uh, made the proposal that he could uh, build a robot to go up the queen's chamber shaft <coughs> and uh, to see where it led to, because uh, nobody knew where it led to. They couldn't find an exit on the outside, and so uh, everybody was really, you know, in the dark about what was up there. Right, <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> Um I remember that whole Gantt Brings Door thing was fascinating, and I never really got a, a clear answer on it, to be honest. I mean, I I mean, I remember seeing the all the, the talk, and they did the specials on Discovery again, you know, and History yes. Channel or whatever. Yes. But, I mean no one ever really
1: no and and you know the thing is it's it's still relevant even now um the uh to to actually build a better robot and 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 t- send it up there to have a uh, a look at behind that this uh, so-called Gunthering store but um but in you know in 1993 nobody knew anything about it so mm-hmm. <clears throat> when he when he uh took his or sent his robot up there and it uh, sent the images back, um he they found this this uh it had come to a terminated, it came to a dead end, and there was what has been called a door, but it's a you know even Gantlembring doesn't call it a door. Right, right. They call calls it a USO, which is an unidentified stone object. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is little tongue, little tongue-in-cheek. Human, I love that. But, know, typical true. for an engineer, oh, I think. Oh,
2: yeah, that's pretty funny. Okay.
1: Yeah. And, uh, oh, that's great. You know, <laughs> the remarkable thing is, is that, uh, you know, people who get involved in this take themselves so seriously. Oh, gosh, you know, I know. And uh, I, I just find engineers so refreshing because most of them, they don't take anything seriously.
0: But that's great. I mean, they just look at it from a pretty pragmatic standpoint. <laughs> I love that. Right,
1: right. And and so the um, so this this uh unidentified stone object appeared with two copper fittings that came through. Right.
0: Okay. So and there's two copper fittings that are sticking out of it.
1: Right. Exactly. Like
0: terminals or something.
1: Terminals. Well, you know that was that was the thing. I mean, that was another eureka moment. Yeah, I mean,
0: that's just me. sort of intuition. It seemed like.
1: Um, or not. Actually, f- for me. Yeah. No, it, no, it was it was predictable in my in my uh in my theory, but it wasn't an intuitive thing. Hmm. Um the, the intuitive thing was actually what the uh, how the energy moved within within the, the the great pyramid. Uh and that was that it it moved from the inside and out, uh from the king's chamber and and moved to the outside. Now that was just the, the, the vision that I had, uh, in 1977, but it, you know, the, the real work was to actually determine, okay, if that's the case, then what kind of energy was it? How was it being, uh, created? And how does it, how do all these features on the inside, um, well, how do you, how are they supported by the, uh, the power plant theory? And and so it was really a matter of uh, looking at the evidence and trying to determine what what the evidence indicated, such as the Queen's Chamber, and the Queen's Chamber. Uh, some of the evidence that we find down there indicate that there was a chemical reaction going on, because in uh, in the early early days when people went in there they found this chamber and it was uh... encrusted with salt up to an inch thick Um now th- it's the only chamber within the great pyramid that has this kind of accumulation of, of salt on the walls uh-huh. and and even the, the shafts themselves showed signs of uh, erosion Particularly, the southern shaft is extremely eroded in the lower portion, hmm. and then there's gypsum oozing out between some of the blocks.
0: Why would that be?
1: Well, as I uh, did research on that and and I try to analyze why there's this two these two shafts coming into the chamber um, with without a. Um, Without a connection to the chamber, because there was this five inch, uh, what they call, a, what they called a left, or, uh, Piazza Smythe named it a left, because it was just left there, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> That's an interesting. Uh, so,
0: so, so creative. There have like been some really, co-
1: yeah, uh, there have been some really colorful characters uh, okay. in history who have studied the Great Pyramid. And,
0: was that Schwaller Delubitz? Is that for you? Schwaller
1: Delubitz. De
0: he was one of the guys.
1: That was oh, the he world. was his. Yeah, he's he's. Uh, we could talk about Schwaller a little bit. I I've, <clears throat> I've I've uh, started to, uh, work you know nibble at the fringes of uh, Schwaller Delubitz, but yeah, just talk about to body of work. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I'm certainly. Uh, I, I can't speak about it with great authority, but I can uh, talk a little bit about. The, uh, the the temple of Luxor, which was his, uh, or you know, magnum opus. It mm-hmm. was a fantastic mm-hmm. work that he did in uh, the temple of Men. The um, but anyway, the Piazzi Smythe was one of the researchers. That uh, he was the astronomer royal in Scotland and the bad boy of Egyptology mm-hmm. uh, because he uh, he had these wacky ideas right, about right. Uh, religion and. Uh, And mathematics, and what the what the Great Pyramid represented, but really really heavy reading when you read that books. And you know, you can reading a one of these earlier works in in light of today today's consciousness, if you will. um, The the prejudice that uh, is evident within within the writing is. Is quite evident, <laughs> uh, and the way they refer to the the, uh, the natives in the area at the time, and, you know, it was, it was very colourful writing, uh, very flowery writing. Uh, certainly not one that you could adopt and hope to get a publisher today. But anyway, it's it's uh, fascinating to read it. But he, uh, when he uh, was uh, was uh, describing this left. Um, This is actually, it was a limestone that that had the shaft that had been cut into the block, uh, into the top of the block, uh, and it left the, uh, it just terminated five inches from completing uh, through to the inside of the wall.
0: You Um, know, and, I'm sorry, Chris, let me ask you a question about
2: it.
0: I've heard it spoken about, you know, that well, these are just mistakes, you know, that you know, just there is no sense for it, uh, so it must have just been a mistake. But it just, I just want to get that out there be, and, and let you address it because I don't, I personally, I I think that that's probably not the case. These things were done with tremendous precision, as you point out, so there was probably a reason for it. But that, but that is one of the arguments apparently.
1: Um yes, anything I mean a lot of times things that uh can, people can't explain, uh they you know they will say well it's a um you know it's an anomaly, it's a mistake or um they'll come up with something else or that it has a religious significance or a symbolic uh,
0: Yeah, yes, that's that's usually used a lot, used yeah. A lot symbolic significance
1: Yeah, hmm. symbolic symbolism and, and religion and uh mm-hmm. You know such as i'll give you an example when Genton uh discovered this u s o with the copper fittings uh-huh. the the theory was that uh, it was actually a door and uh, rainer Saddleman, who was the uh, i believe he's the uh, he's had the german mission in in egypt he's the egyptologist said that uh, said that they The the, uh, it was there because the uh, the king's soul would actually go up that shaft and and uh, go through the door
0: and and then go become a star or something like become a star
1: to Osiris and and so you know I mean it it is it it does kind of these anomalies do spawn all kinds of weird ideas now you know of course they would say that my idea is the weirdest but. Uh, and <clears throat> and uh argue it quite forcibly but the uh, but it, it is at le- at least my idea fits within the context of the entire theory when Yeah, you the consider, evidence yeah the it, it it's it's an explanation that can be can be tested and verified it's not it's not what i consider to be pseudo pseudoscience uh because it is verifiable and it, and it's testable no so and and also predictable because when they when they went in and uh actually exploited again, i think it was in two thousand two thousand one or two thousand and two uh they drilled a small hole through the this u s o and the end of the southern shaft, and uh then a week later, they went up the northern shaft and the uh, the indications on at the end of the northern shaft were that what we had again was uh, two electrodes uh, that served the function that, as described in the Giza power plant, and there is a uh, an article, actually a, couple, a few articles on the the uh, Queen's chamber and the why I why I came up with the theory of what that chamber was used for and what the purpose for the shafts were. And the evidence surrounding it, there is a significant amount of evidence, and and then when, of course, it's it's supported by what is found after the theory, then uh, the elements of a good theory are being supported because you you've got something that's predictable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in fact, you know, if they if they hadn't found the electrodes at the end of the northern shelf, then uh, my detractors would have every right to, to say to me, well, you, you know, your theory falls down because mm-hmm. they didn't, didn't find any electrodes right. at the end of this shaft." Well, uh, I'm but, sorry, but there they down. are. Right.
0: <laughs> right. All right, well, look, uh, let's uh, let's take another short break here, okay? Okay and by the way, wh- where Christopher, where are you? you're in the Midwest somewhere, aren't you?
1: Yes, I'm in uh, Danville, Illinois
0: Danville, Illinois all right well i'm I'm in uh, Columbia, Missouri. We're both 1.30 uh, in the a.m. you know I, w- I went to uh, DeKalb I went to uh, Northern Illinois University for a little while. Where's Danville This is pretty much in the middle of the state, isn't it?
1: Yeah um, it's right at the border uh, along the i-74 corridor. Uh, it's about 30 miles east of Champaign, uh-huh. uh,
0: Urbana, where the I is. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm I'm uh, I'm an Illinois native actually. I was born in Rockford, Illinois, which is up around the northern border up there near Wisconsin. But oh yeah. yeah. Anyway, okay. Well, look. Uh, thanks for sticking up uh, with us at 1:30 in the morning. So I hope people appreciate it. It's late, and uh, we've got wonderful uh, conversation with Chris. So stick around just for another minute, all right, Chris? Okay. All right, everybody, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN, Columbia, 89.5 FM. We'll come back with Christopher Dunn in just a moment. And you can check out the website in the meantime at www.mikehagan.com. And you can link over to Chris's site. There's all kinds of interesting stuff there. I've been meaning to say it uh, and jump in the whole uh, time we've been talking. But uh, if you dig down into Christopher's site, there's lots of very interesting articles and uh, research uh, papers and uh, and also imagery uh, a lot of this stuff is uh, it's helpful if you can see some of the imagery uh, schematics and this sort of thing um, to get the visual aspect of it because some of it is a little bit uh, uh, difficult to, to put together in your mind sometimes when you're just hearing the words but at any rate uh, go on over there to Chris's site and take a look around and uh, snoop around a little bit okay alright it's Mike and let's see a couple more quick ones here From uh, Sun Kill Moon. This is from their new CD that is called Twin Cities. And we're going to hear the first couple tracks on this CD. And they're short. So we'll be back with Chris in just a minute. It's Mike who listening to Radio Orbit. And uh, we'll be back in just a minute. Let's see. Where is it? Here we go. Here it's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit KOPN Columbia. You just heard "Exit Does Not Exist" and "Tiny Cities, <laughs> Tiny Cities Made of Ashes." A couple tracks there from Sunkill Moon's recent release that I've been playing. Tracks from All Evening called "Twin Cities." All right, it's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit. We've got Christopher Dunn on the line with us for another 20 minutes or so. And uh, before the break, Christopher, we were talking about the fact that. They actually did find these electrodes, uh, so I guess yeah. the question is, what are the implications of it? I mean, tell, what's it mean?
1: Well, I mean, the uh, I call them electrodes. Um, I'm sure that they uh, don't have would have other purposes for them, handles or something like that. But to me, they're clearly electrodes, and the and the process. Uh, The Queen's Chamber uh, actually indicates that they would have electrodes there, and essentially, what they the the purpose they served was to uh, monitor the uh, fluid level in these shafts, which was fed into the uh, reaction chamber, and the um, and even the chemicals that I proposed to come into this chamber and react creating hydrogen um, the features of the of the electrodes support that view where on, on the southern shaft where I propose that you had a dilute hydrochloric acid solution right. you have erosion in the shaft and you also have erosion on the electrodes um, that is quite distinct on the northern shaft I propose that they had hydrated zinc fluoride solution um, coming into the uh, the Queen's chamber, and that's... you don't have the same erosion in the on the walls of the shaft, and mm-hmm. the electrodes at the end um, appear to be electroplated. Mm. So um, yes, you can find out, uh, photographs on my web, um, and you can see what I'm talking about. And so the electroplating process uh, can only take place when uh, electricity is passing. From one electrode to the other, and uh, in the presence of these metal oxides uh, in liquid um, form, right yeah, exactly it's just like an electroplating bat uh-huh. and uh, and so you you see this kind of a uh, appearance of a um, a zinc plate plating process going on on these electrodes, but essentially what the electrodes were used for was to uh, when the fluid dropped below a particular Level uh, and the, the fluid was no longer touching the electrodes. It would interrupt the switch, the what I call the flow of electricity, mm-hmm. and that would signal that uh, more more fluid or more chemical needed to be pumped into those shafts. I
0: see. Fascinating.
1: So yes, and and that and more uh, is freely available on my website uh, with respect to the exploration of those
0: shafts in, in the Great Pyramid. Um, Christopher, l- let me ask you a question again about uh, that regards with the shaft and and the the actual working of the stone there. Could you talk a little bit about the you mentioned earlier? Wh- where I make my note here? Finely fitted, you use that terminology. How how good are the the fits between these stones and and like um. I'm curious about things like radiuses of corners and things like that.
1: Yes. Um, <laughs> very good question, Mike. Um, the, the precision that you, we find on the stones, the, the most talked about is the precision of the casing stone that Petrie measured, and the, the precision there is, is within ten thousandths of an inch, over seventy-five square inches. Uh, Of the surface of the block. And the stones were brought together and fitted together within 20 thousandths of an inch. So you had a a tolerance of plus or minus five thousandths of an inch, and then on each block, and if you met, you know, if you uh, covered that band of tolerance, so you had a surface that was within 10, then you Mm. bring the two together, they both uh, have a. uh, an inaccuracy, if you will, of 10,000, 20,000 to zero gap. Right, that's all you. Right. Well, you go into the inside, into the Queen's Chamber, and those, the blocks on the Queen's Chamber are perfectly fitted. Uh There's no gap. Um, you cannot even, you know, put a... uh
0: No credit card, nothing like that. Not, no,
1: no, no, credit card, no. Not <laughs> even a piece of paper between huh. them. Um, and they're very large, too. So, the yes, the, the precision of the wall blocks in the Queen's Chamber and the Grand Gallery uh, is extremely, extremely precise. I mean, it's just like uh, what we would call gauge blocks in the shop, you know. The, mm-hmm. These are these uh, the highly precisely ground pieces of steel that if you actually bring them to you, what they call ringing them together or will bring them together and push them together and rotate them around you actually push all the air out and they will stick together almost like you, you, know, you would uh, glue them together but uh-huh, uh-huh. You, you are just putting two extremely flat surfaces together and uh, they're very difficult to separate
0: well you it's interesting it's, it's almost like, a, like an ionic bond or something
1: well um I, I, yeah i mean actually it's it could be uh there could be something like that going on, but um the theory is that you're pushing all the air out uh when you when you rotate it and and push them together that uh-huh. uh they, that they become uh, they, they become uh
0: stuck oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow all right so uh yeah
1: so so you have that condition in the, of the precision. And uh... on the in the Queen's Chamber in the Grand Gallery, perfectly fitted, massive blocks of limestone.
0: And the corners are real sharp.
1: And the corners, um, which uh, the constructed corners, uh, um, that obviously are, are very are square. Uh-huh. Um, but what is significant to me is the, the inside corners of some of the granite boxes. That uh, have been built, and uh, that you find in the king in the the uh, great great pyramid, in the second pyramid, other pyramids, uh, are these finely worked granite boxes. They call them sarcophagus. Mm-hmm. I think that's a misnomer, but you know, for because it is a box-like shape and mm-hmm. it has certain dimensions, they assume that that's where a body was was kept. But the uh, the the box inside the the king's chamber in the great pyramid is very very uh, very interesting and it's very precise too the corners on the inside the the corner radius is only about it's under a quarter of an inch and and so that is a really a significant uh a significant thing in the second pyramid kafir's pyramid it's under a quarter of an inch huh. The corners are perfectly square when you when you check them out with a, uh, a precision square, and I had one there in 2001 when I visited. That was a precision toolmaker's square with a 14-inch blade, and uh, for that very purpose of, of see checking the precision on the inside corners of these uh, artifacts, and actually there is a photograph. Photograph of me in, on the my yeah,
0: website. I was just going to mention it because you're you're uh, sort of sort of stooping down, and oh, yeah. uh, you've got your, uh, I think it's right at the top of the advanced machining in ancient Egypt page. Yeah, there's
1: another right? one. There's another one there, and I think that's the in, in, inside within the uh, the article, the precision of the ancient Egyptians. So, right. uh, and I'm actually standing inside a box. Uh-huh.
0: What uh, what what might have been the purpose of these boxes? You think, uh, Christopher, if, it, if if it wasn't uh, you know the traditional idea that there was just a tomb and somebody was buried there?
1: Well, I think they had a, definitely had a purpose, and the um, I know that there's a lot of talk, a lot of theories about the Ark of the Covenant and how mm. the dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant would uh, fit into these boxes, and that's why the boxes were square and had perfect corners. Um, uh, and you know, I don't know. I mean, it's a it's a, a, a good theory. I don't think anybody's ever proven that the Ark of the Covenant exists, right? Uh,
0: and that it fits in that particular and,
1: box, right? And so, you know, it's it's very difficult to substantiate that. Uh, though I I wouldn't dismiss it, um, because, I mean, the there are objects, there are artifacts that no longer exist. Obviously, mm-hmm. the tools to build this thing no longer exist, so.
0: What, um, what do you make of that?
1: The tools being gone. <laughs> I think that's what happened, Mike. And I'm going to be perfectly honest. Yeah, and you know, this,
0: a, I, I'm sorry, but it, it's a good time to. And I'm, I'm actually going to state it as a question because uh, uh, there have been a couple people on the on the uh, in the chat room here that, that have mentioned it, and they said, "Ask Chris about origins. What's he really think? You know, about where these things came from, or how you know what, where where are the tools and this sort of thing."
1: Well. um this is what I think, and this is what I believe the evidence points to. Um, we have no, and I'll preface what I'm going to say by saying uh, we have no problem accepting the fact that we have had cataclysms in the past. Mm. We have no problem accepting that these uh, forces of nature that are really the natural cycles of the universe and they that these forces of nature when they do occur um, can have devastating effects on on uh, civilizations that uh if they can wipe out entire cultures i mean if you look at the the tsunami in the um South, the Asia, South East, South Asia seas. You find that they are, you know, they they killed what, how many, two hundred fifty thousand people, mm-hmm. um, at least, yeah, yeah. And they're talking about the possibility of a uh, tsunami being generated off the west coast.
0: You know, and interestingly, Christopher, uh, when when that tsunami uh, uh, hit the uh, uh, the Asian coastline, it. It uncovered like an ancient city too, right. you know, off the coast. There's just uh, outrageous. So.
1: Yeah, some of the old uh, the temples were appearing as the water receded before <laughs> the deluge. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you know, all these all these things we have no problem comets uh, striking mm-hmm. the, the planet, uh, asteroids. Mm-hmm. Uh, we 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 know that it's happened in the past, and we accept the fact that it can happen in the future. Right. Um, so I think what we have to consider is that civilization is uh, cyclical, too. And it's not a linear process as far as the evolution of of uh, civilization and technology, that it has happened in the
0: past. Yeah, linear history is sort of a... Yes,
1: and end. then a, a a massive event occurs and it wipes out pretty much all the... Everything that can be wiped out, in terms of the uh, strength of the materials, the nature of the materials, the uh, and and then what may be left um, would be uh, basically cannibalized. Or if there was anybody that survived this uh, Holocaust, they would um, they would they would actually go back and start using the materials mm-hmm. for, for, to survive. And in fact, I had a conversation with a very good friend of mine the other night with his with his two sons. His name's Ed Milkowski, He wrote before the Pharaohs. Mm-hmm. Great guy. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we were sitting around the dinner table, and and I said, you know, the kind of if there was a huge disaster, you know, the kind of real estate that I'd like to own. And well, uh, I said, what kind of real estate would you like to own? And they they were talking about, oh, you know, a Sedona or you know, living out in some, you know really nice what we consider today a uh, beautiful area Uh on top of a mountain or something like that you know and then i said well you know what i'd like to own it i'd like to own the city dump (laughs) because (laughs) because if something happens you know you're going to be coming to me All the stuff in the dump that people have been putting there for years and years is going to suddenly have some value. Isn't that something? Yeah, I mean, all the plastic, you know, they're going to want to take the plastic and burn it Mm -hmm. and get some heat out of it.
0: Yeah, it's all oil, basically.
1: Yeah. So anyway, you know, I mean, and that's that's basically an aside. But the reality is is that we do have the remains of just the, the mere skeleton of a civilization. And when you look at the sophistication of the skeleton and you try to dress it, and put, you know, put some flesh and, and some intelligence on it, uh the picture that emerges is absolutely, absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it cannot be dismissed. And I, I will tell you that uh just l- right lately, I know that uh, you had mentioned earlier, you know, if I was working on any other articles or books, um, yeah. I've been to Egypt twice this year, and the, the reason I went—I went, I went to—I I joined John Anthony West uh-huh. because uh-huh. I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to learn more about Swallow Delubix, and I uh-huh. was became fascinated with the uh, the Luxor Temple, uh-huh. and I went to the Luxor Temple for the first time in 2004, and but I led a tour group over there, and so. Of course, I had obligations and I couldn't do much research. But what I did see there uh, really excited me, and I had to go back. So I went with John and I took a, a you know a decent camera with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, took a lot of photographs. Uh, went to the Temple of Dendera, the Temple of Adibo, Abydos. And,
0: Abydos is amazing. Yeah, too.
1: and a lot of you know Philae. I went mm-hmm. to the Aswan quarries, and mm-hmm. uh, we had a you know it was a great.
0: So is, is, is there a collaborative book in the works or something like that
1: well, uh, I wouldn't say it's a collaborative book no I mean John is a, a wonderful guy he's a very high, highly intelligent fellow quite a raconteur uh, <laughs> and immensely entertaining and, but uh, you know his, uh, I, I wouldn't say that there's going to be a collaboration in terms of us writing a book together though he is, ve- he is being very helpful uh, in answering questions uh, that, I, that I may have But what I have found um, is that in the temples uh, we have the same order of precision that we find at Giza. Hmm. We find uh, engineering masterpieces that even now I'm trying to wrap my mind around. Hmm. Um, Give us an example. Well, I'll give you an example. There are... There are statues that have been created, uh, massive statues, 30 feet high, weighing 300 tons. And when you examine these statues uh, and you measure the geometries of these statues, you find an order of precision that is totally unexpected. Mm-hmm. And you find geometries, shapes, that are totally unexpected. And it is absolutely mind-blowing. It just totally changes our whole view Mm -hmm. of what they were about. Amazing. It is absolutely
0: amazing. Well, uh, so I I guess uh, regardless of whether you do it by yourself or with assistance, are you planning to to write any more about it, or are you just going to post this stuff on the website, or...?
1: Um, I am preparing a new, uh, another book. All actually, right. I probably have two that I have to write, <laughs> um, right. because the 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 next one is going to be uh, purely about um, these discoveries that I've made with respect to the the temples, um, and it's pure engineering, pure science. It's, not, it's irrefutable. Uh, it cannot be disputed um, and it's going and it's going to be I want to put it out there as a challenge for uh, not necessarily to um, you know have any preconceived conclusions that I would bring to it but to describe the artifacts describe the skills necessary to, mm-hmm. to produce and analyze them mm-hmm and those skills don't include sticks and stones and copper chisels Mm -hmm. um there's absolutely no way and Mm -hmm. when you see it you'll recognize Mm -hmm. it immediately you'll say aha now Uh i know what he was
0: talking amazing you know i i've been thinking about some of this stuff too and you know we were talking about technology and about how you know it can over time basically leave no trace you know
2: Mm -hmm. or or
0: or very little trace maybe Mm -hmm. and I think of our own technology and one of the things that I think is interesting is that as we get more technologically advanced the technology seems to get smaller
2: mm-hmm. and it
0: seems to me that a sufficiently advanced technology would be really small and then it will probably might not be that difficult to, to to disappear it you know what I mean yes yes in other words I don't think they're doing things with big old cranes maybe you know You
1: know, yeah I mean that's a very very good point because the uh, the one of the one of the thoughts that I had as I was walking through these temples and and actually getting a sense of what they were um <clears throat> and how massive uh some of the the statuary is and how massive the the columns are um and i you know the thought that I got was that you know, it's almost like they knew that they were doomed and they were leaving a message for future civilization amazing. That was once it was interpreted it was totally totally unmistakable because it's almost like you know they built out a stone that would last for thousands and thousands of years mm-hmm. and they crafted it in a way that um, only really some an advanced civilization or somebody who was uh, could understand the geometries and what it takes to create these things would understand it and be able to describe it. So you know that's what the book is about, that's what the next book is about. It's going to, uh, and it, it, it of course relies on a lot of really gorgeous photographs mm-hmm. but uh, photographs that are, you'll see in a way that you haven't seen it before.
0: All righty, well look, uh, we are about at the end of the tunnel here, so uh
1: yeah. oh, another thing, just before we go. Yes, you know we please. talked about uh, comets. Do you, uh, did you hear about the, um, the recent, recent discovery that a, a comet hits um, near the Egypt and Libyan border mm-hmm. near Kibera? They found a evidence of a huge impact crater there. I,
0: I did. I did read something yeah. about that. Yeah, they yeah. found they found it from a satellite imagery or something. Right, like that, and
1: right? that thing was so it's nineteen yes, miles huge. across. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Well, you never know, you know.
1: No, you just never know.
0: All right. Well, look, uh, I hope we make it to your next book. All right?
1: (laughs) I hope so, too.
0: All right, Christopher. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate your time, and I know that the listeners do as well. We've had a lot of great comments in the chat room here. I I wish I could have gotten to all of them, but everybody really enjoyed the program, I think. And we'll get this thing up on the web and share it with some more people. and. uh, from my heart thanks again it's great right, stuff well, you're, you're you're an amazing guy and the work is outrageous I love it So
1: uh, oh it's outrageous alright
0: yeah I can't wait to see more of it so we'll stay in okay. touch and maybe when uh, when you're ready we can do this again ok ok
1: Mike thanks a lot alright
0: take care of yourself alright
1: alright
0: all right, everybody that's Christopher Dunn wonderful stuff and uh, thanks again to Christopher for uh, being on the program tonight ok we'll get him back uh, when we get a chance to and uh, take a look at some more of his new material it's actually uh, just a just, uh, really cool and uh Amazing stuff, so all right, it's Mike, and we got just a few more minutes left here next week. I'm not sure um, maybe something special, always something special, but uh, Kent Stedman, maybe I might have the bard back on there. I haven't had Kent on for a while. might just do some news stories and talk a little bit and open the phone lines and chat with the people on the web, or we might have a special guest that I'm trying to work out, but it may not work out for next week, so we'll see. But anyway, it's been a pleasure, as always. Thanks for listening, and uh, thanks to uh, my friend Will, who actually stopped by the station and dropped off some great photos that he took uh, a couple of weeks ago. And everybody listening on the web and participating in the chat room, it's really cool, and I appreciate you guys sticking around and, uh, um, and staying up with us. It's great stuff, all right? All right, what else? Uh, thanks, kopn.org uh, for making it happen, making the vehicle available. And also, to cosmicwavesradio.com. Uh, every Monday night, bringing it to you live over the Internet. Okay, one last song from Sun Kill Moon. This is the last track on their CD, tiny cities. It's called Ocean Breathes Salty. All right, it's Mike. You've been listening to Radio Orbit. You can find me on the web at www.mikehagan.com, and you can always find KOPN there as well at kopn.org.